The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading comes from Romans 2, verses 1 through 5. And you can follow along on the screen behind me or with the Bibles under your seats. I don't want my passion to be determined by how many people are in here. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This has been the reading of God's word. You may be seated. So while I'm getting set up, I actually just want to tell a quick story about my wife. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Justin Kramer. My wife and I have been members here since, uh, since we started the church almost seven years ago. So, fun fact about my wife. She has an unbelievable nose. And I don't mean like her nose is attractive or unattractive. I mean she can literally smell anything. I mean anything. And I appreciate that about her because it does come to help me, but... I've had at least three episodes with her in the last month. So I was laying in bed, and I mean, I'm like almost asleep. And she rolls over, and she goes, (laughs) I'm like, what? (laughs) She said, your deodorant stinks. I said, deodorant doesn't stink by nature of the fact that it's deodorant. She said, yours stinks. Need to change it. So I went on a search, and I had to try different kinds, and... Anyway, fast forward. I get back in bed. She goes, I'm like, what? (laughs) You know, I've walked around my whole life and nobody's ever said anything to me, right? So clearly either I'm deceived or I don't smell. She goes, your soap doesn't smell good. I'm like, dude, come on. So anyway, so I got new deodorant, new soap. But that is a a closet fear of mine, is to have some sort of odor, whether it be breath or body odor or something, um, and not know it, right? I'm in a, a, my profession, my job has me around people a lot of times. So the worst thing I want to do is be unaware. And ironically, where we are in chapter 2 in Romans, the Jews are wholly unaware of where they lay spiritually. And so that's what we want to consider this morning. We want to consider verses 1 through 5 of chapter 2 and what God is uh, speaking through Paul to the Romans or to the uh, uh, Jews themselves. So before we start, let's pray and then we can get cracking on Romans chapter 2. 
Heavenly Father, we give thanks this morning to be together. There are so many places that we could be. But we are here, and we know by design that that means that you are here. And so we're thankful for your presence this morning. Or even in our best attempt to read Romans chapter 2, we will fall short. How can we understand it? How can we apply it? How can your word be as sweet as honey to us this morning? And the only answer is if you make it so. And so we ask that, Lord, that Paul's original intent here, Lord, in your divine purposes in writing the Bible, what you would mean for us to understand today, that we would be able to take it, chew on it, understand it, and apply it. Certainly for your glory, but also for our benefit. Because you've designed that there are real benefits to life in Christ. And so that's what we want. We want that. We need that. And Lord, if, if someone's in here and has never experienced life in Christ, Lord, we beg that today would be that day. So give us clear eyes to understand this text well and to see you more clearly. In Christ's name, amen. Carolyn read for us chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, and we started in Romans uh, several weeks ago, and we've been marching through. And Paul has just spent verses 18 through 32 talking about the unrighteousness and wickedness that exists in the world, but particularly with pagans, non-Christians, Gentiles. And he makes a a stark pivot in the start of chapter 2, and he zeroes in on the Jews themselves. So what he is meaning to flesh out in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, is that the very same things that the Gentiles were not only practicing, but the way the unrighteousness that they were practicing showed itself is actually present in their lives as well. And so if you have your Bibles... Please turn there. We're just going to march right through this. I think it's helpful to get a a foundation on 1 through 5 before we try and chew on some takeaways. So starting here in verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. So Paul's pointing here to exactly what he just told the the Gentile reader, because presumably we have both Jews and Gentiles in Rome intermingled, reading and pouring over this letter that was sent to them by the Apostle Paul. So in chapter 1, verses 20, Paul tells the reader that the Gentiles are without excuse. You're not off the hook. Just because you uh, uh, you weren't in the Jewish nation of Israel, you have no excuse because nature displays, as Paul says, God's divine attributes and his eternal power. He then tells the Jews, and you, if they're not without excuse, you definitely aren't without excuse because you've been given the oracles of God. Right? One of the things that made the Jews distinctly Jewish is that they had the Old Testament scriptures. 
And in fact, they prided themselves on knowing, studying, and understanding those scriptures. And so Paul says, look, if the, if the, if the Gentiles don't have the scriptures and they're not off the hook, you certainly, because you have the very words of God, are not off the hook either. In fact, the Jews had a sort of indignation or a, 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 a nose turn up towards the Gentiles themselves. And we see that throughout the entire Bible. And Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 says, the form and measure that you use to judge others is exactly what will be used to judge you. So Paul would have had that in mind as he's laying out for them, for in passing judgment on, on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Moving on in verse 2. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Such things being what he's, what he's outlined in verses particularly 28 through 32. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. And I think it's helpful here to sort of pull apart some words. right? Some things that we've probably intermingled. We've heard things like God's wrath. God's justice, God's anger, God's judgment. Are, are, those, are those interchangeable? Can we use those sort of together? Are they separate? I think what Paul intends us to understand is that those words are separate. So when Paul says here that, that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things, that God's, God's, God is not wrath. That, that, that is not a characteristic of God. God is not wrath in the same way that God is not glory. Right? We go to Isaiah 6 where uh, the prophet Isaiah says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory, not his holiness. Right? So holiness is the attribute of God. And his glory is how we see that attribute displayed. So, God is not wrath, but rather God is just, right? So, his justice demands that he have a righteous anger towards any and all injustice, or more clearly, sin, right? So, God's justice, that would be his, his character, demands his wrath, we see his justice displayed in his wrath or his righteous anger. The execution of that wrath is his judgment. Right? Do you see that? So God's justice requires he respond in wrath or righteous anger, which is sealed or cemented with his judgment. Uh, maybe a clearer picture is, is this. Uh, go to a courtroom. Right? So somebody's in court, they're on trial, a crime has been committed. A judgment is rendered and a sentence is carried out. Right? God's justice, God's wrath, and God's judgment. And so Paul here is saying that the execution of that wrath 
God's judgment rightly falls on those who practice such things. Such things as we see in the end of chapter 1. Malice, slander, envy, murder, strife, deceit, gossip, insolence, boastfulness, disobedience, foolishness. On and on and on. That God's wrath, his anger, is stirred up against those things. Anyone who practices them, regardless of Jew or Gentile. So keep going, though. Paul is, Paul is sort of untangling this for us the deeper we go into the verses. Verse 3. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Paul is starting to press in on something here with the Jewish reader. Namely, the fact that they are very arrogant. Because they did, in fact, presume that, that they wouldn't face God's judgment. In fact, they assumed that since God had chosen them and blessed them for their entire history, that he'd continue to do so. That their ethnic standing equated to a right position before God. That because they were God's chosen people, that not only would his judgment not pass down to them, but it certainly wouldn't pass down in the ways that it would to the Gentiles. Take John the Baptist and his exchange with these very same Jews in Matthew chapter 3. They look at John the Baptist and say, don't you know that we are children of Abraham? And John looks at him and says, don't you know that God could raise up stones to be the children of Abraham? There's nothing special about you. And think about what, what we just got out of in 1 Peter. When Peter says, you once were not a people. And God made you a people. You were once nothing, and God made you something. Or think about in John chapter 8 here, when Jesus is preaching to the Jews. In fact, let me just, I'm going to turn there real quick. This is too good not to. John chapter 8, starting in verse 31. You don't have to turn there, but just listen. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And the Jews answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? The Jews' pride and arrogance blinded them from even seeing their own history. They said, We've never been enslaved to anyone. They had clearly forgotten that they were enslaved for 400 years in Egypt. They clearly had forgotten that they were exiled into Babylon and enslaved there. Their own pride had kept them from seeing their own history. But not only that, their own pride had kept them from reading their Bibles correctly. Because if they had read the scriptures correctly, 
they would have seen Jesus was, in fact, the Christ. And so pride is a dangerous thing. Romans 12 warns us that we ought to not think more highly of ourselves. Or Galatians 6, if anyone thinks he is something, then he is nothing, and he deceives himself. Let's pause for a moment. It's sort of easier to throw stones here at the Jews, isn't it, for their pride, their lack of understanding of their own history. I wonder, 500 years from now, what kind of stones would someone throw at American Christians? I wonder what sort of ways our pride and arrogance has blinded us, not just from seeing our own history correctly, but from reading our Bibles correctly. In what ways have we been blinded by our own pride? Let's keep going. Verse 4. This is, this is, I mean, this is where it's all coming together. Verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? They again did presume on God's kindness. In fact, we, we see this very exchange in Ezekiel chapter 20. You don't have to go there. The prophet Ezekiel here is, is outlining for them their history, and he is begging them to repent. God sent Ezekiel to speak truth in the late 500s B.C. to this people. Starting in verse 7. It said, look, God wanted to make this people his people. And the only thing he required was for them to cast away detestable things. What's their response? None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. So what does God do, right? His justice demands that he respond in wrath and righteous anger towards sin. God's response to this was, they deserved my wrath, but I acted for the sake of my name. So then, he leads them out of Egypt. And what does he ask him to do? Follow my statutes. And what do they do? The house of Israel rebelled against me. And this is, this is the prophet Ezekiel going through their history. They rebelled against me. They did not walk in my statutes, but rejected my rules. And again, God's wrath is justified, but what does he say again? I stayed, the exact language is in verse 17. Nevertheless, my eye spared them, and I did not destroy them or make a full end of them in the wilderness. But if you've read Ezekiel, you'll know that this kind of forbearance 
this kind of not dealing with sin in righteous anger immediately doesn't continue for them. Because in fact, the book of Ezekiel is split up into two sections. The section where we see here the prophet Ezekiel is warning them of what will come, God's judgment, and then the execution of that judgment when they are sold into slavery and exiles in Babylon. Or let's fast forward here to the Roman reader in the middle 50s, 50 to 55 AD. God's judgment would soon come again in AD 70 when the temple of Jerusalem was completely destroyed. So even though they had presumed that God's judgment wouldn't come on them because they were ethnic Israel, it did. And it would. It did not lead them to repentance. We see that in verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent, or unrepentant, same thing, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Paul highlights what we've already seen, which is that God's immeasurable kindness towards his people, the Jews, did not lead them to repentance. It actually produced in them a hard and unrepentant heart. And so God's kindness and forbearance and patience had not produced in them what it should because the Jews covenant alone with God that he would be their God and they would be his people would not keep them in right standing with a holy and righteous God. This should produce some questions for us. Some questions like, well, what exactly is wrath then? Right, is that only a future thing? Ought we as Christians to be fearful of God's wrath? Why is it if God is so just that he doesn't strike down every sin, every time, on the spot? And, and, and other questions like that. And so here's where I think it'll be helpful for us to spend the last few minutes together. Let's, let's spend some time unpacking here. What about God's future wrath? What about his present wrath or judgment? And then what sort of hope could we possibly have? That's a helpful way for us to think about it. God's future wrath, his present wrath or judgment, and then what is our hope? Let's go to verse 5, which is God's future wrath here. We see, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And this is probably what we would most commonly understand wrath to be, right? the day of judgment. And the Bible outlines numerous scriptures, 2 Corinthians 5. Each of us will receive what is due for us, the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. 2 Peter, God did not even spare angels when they sinned, so we too will be judged. Acts 17, for God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he appointed. Ecclesiastes 12, God will bring every deed into judgment, whether good or evil. 
Matthew 25 talks about the eternal punishment that waits on the day of judgment. Hebrews 10.31, a sobering verse. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And so there is a day coming where we will all stand in the grand courtroom of heaven and we will give an account for all that we've done, both good and bad. The Jews were wrong in believing that they would give no such account. We would be wrong to think that just because we are Christians that we won't give an account either because we will. And I don't want to steal any thunder, but this is where 6 through 11 goes. I mean, just take a little peek over the fence here. Verse 6, he will render to each one according to his works. Randy will spend some time fleshing that out for us theologically and practically next week. But we will give an account, certainly. And our deeds, the Christian, should send us into eternal punishment. But we know what Colossians 2 says. That God in Christ canceled the debt of sin and declared us righteous. Or 1 Corinthians 5, God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. So in our sin and death, we're given righteousness and life. And so in that courtroom, as we stand before the judge and give an account for all the ways in which we've been unkind, for all the ways in which we failed to be loving to our neighbor, for all the ways in which we have violated God's law, God looks over and he sees that robe that is Christ that is cast around us and says, enter into rest, my child. Job well done. Now, for those of us who don't know and are not hidden in Christ, there is no way to explain accurately the torment and treachery of that day. Most of us have a high degree of familiarity with that wrath. But what Romans 1, 18 through chapter 2, verse 6 tells us is that God is not merely waiting for the final judgment to dispense judgment. And so we see God's sort of eternal wrath as a day to come. But there is a type of wrath or judgment that we live with now. John Piper would suggest that there are at least three ways that we deal with, experience, understand, or see God's righteous judgment today. Death, suffering, and sin. And that's, pulled, that's Romans 5, Romans 8, and Romans 3. 
So, even though we as Christians are spared God's active or eternal wrath, we still very much live in a world where we experience that sort of judgment through death, suffering, and sin. How, how does Paul, and how does the Bible, how does Jesus mean for us to put this into view? How can we, how can we, we wrap our hands around this sort of tension that says, I, I thought that God's wrath was satisfied in Christ. I thought that there was no wrath or judgment any longer for the Christian. How do we wrestle with, with that truth, and it is a truth, and the reality that we still deal with death, suffering, and sin? I think the easiest way is to just lightly touch back on verse 4. And I think this unlocks an abundance of scripture that's meant to be our hope? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Or let's read it another way. God is rich in kindness, forbearance, and patience. Right? If they're presuming on that, those are true of God's character and nature. So what is our hope? I think our hope is this. That God's wrath or his judgment is always paired with his divine mercy for the Christian. So that's clear to see on the, on, on the last day in the final judgment. But I think it's also clear to see in his judgment now. So our hope, if this is true, if God's divine wrath and justice are always paired with his divine mercy for the Christian, I think that produces a hope for us in at least four ways. If you haven't paid attention, you haven't written anything down, now would be the time to tune in. At least four ways that God's divine justice produces hope for the Christian. Number one, and we've already said this, but we can't say it enough, Christ has satisfied the eternal justice of God for his people by paying the debt that was owed in our name. And we see what does that produce. That debt being paid produces what we see in Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation, no wrath, no judgment for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, the, 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 the Christian experiences God's justice not in wrath, but the Christian experiences God's justice with peace. The, the non-Christian experiences God's justice, his righteous anger, in the form of wrath and punishment for their evil deeds. But because we are hidden in Christ, we as Christians don't experience God's justice as wrath, but as peace. Number two, even in God's present judgment with death, suffering, and sin, we see it paired with mercy. How? Because for the Christian, death is the gateway to paradise. Suffering 
leads us to holiness. And instead of being enslaved to sin, we now hunger and thirst for righteousness. So even in judgment that we exist because we deal with the fallen state of the world, we deal with the the consequences of our own sin, for the Christian, it is always paired with God's divine mercy. Hope number three, and this is a big one. God's justice, and thereby his wrath and his judgment, don't violate his love. God's justice is rooted in his love. One one pastor put it this way, I thought it was very helpful. God's wrath is an expression of his love and creativity. His wrath isn't ultimately destructive, but creative. It is the action of God that is necessary in order to eradicate sin and the causes of sin. So as Christians, we can be confident that God's justice isn't a deviation from his love, it's rooted in it. And that God's justice isn't merely destructive, but it's actually restorative. We see that in uh, the new heavens and new earth, when God restores and makes all things right, but we can also see that now in Christian living, in gospel community. We see God's restorative justice at work. Number four. Let's re-ask the question. Why does God then, if he is so just, not strike down every sinner at every time for every sin? Romans 3 tells us exactly why. This is Romans 3, 25 through 26. Uh, Back up to verse 24. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Why? It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he he might be both the just and the justifier. You see, God doesn't excuse sin. He didn't excuse sin then. He doesn't excuse sin now. And he won't excuse sin at the final judgment. But God is bearing with us in patience and kindness so that his divine justice is met with his divine grace. So that God is praised as both a just God and a gracious, merciful God. That should be good news, that we're not swallowed up by the earth, that we're not struck down for violating God's moral law. But all of this might seem a little, uh, little far to reach, far to grab. Right? We live in a fairly comfortable environment where uh, the wrath of God isn't talked about. It actually doesn't even feel very real, right? We generally don't see a cause and effect for our sin, at least immediately. So what should we conclude from this? 
Well, I think the answer is it depends. I think it depends if you have trusted on Christ for the forgiveness of sins or not. And so if you are a Christian, what God's kindness is meant to do is to lead us to repentance. And just like the Jews, if we aren't repenting, not the kind of turn and repent that we see in Romans 10, 9 through 10 for salvation, but the regular submissive act of ongoing repentance. You see, salvific or uh, uh, initial repentance leads us into union with Christ. Ongoing regular repentance keeps our communion with Christ intact. It doesn't affect our eternal standing, but it affects our ongoing relationship with Christ and with others. And so repentance is the warm jacket that we can put around ourselves as Christian that keeps us from the, the cold, hard, deadening effects of sin. And so what it needs to produce in us, what it has to produce in us, is repentant hearts. And, and, and that seems to be at least one of the, the roots that Paul is pushing at for the Christian community here. Repent. Not just once, but live a life of repentance. And so maybe what we ought to be looking at in one another is not merely the display of good works, but maybe we ought to know one another well enough to start wrestling through whether or not we're living repentant lives. R Randy and I were talking before service, and um, uh, Charles Stanley uh, preached a sermon, um, and the language in the sermon talked about um, uh, essentially, how there is a sense in which some Christians make it to the final day and are declared righteous, but they smell an awful lot like smoke, like fire. I think the language uh, Stanley used was their lives look like Swiss cheese. They got all these holes. And there's a sense in which God has designed that the repentant life is the full life. That the repentant Christian life is actually where, where peace and rest and fulfillment and satisfaction and joy show themselves. So that's how the Christian ought to, to conclude reading Romans 2, 1 through 5. What about the non-Christian? This is Hebrews 10, 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. But, this is, this is 2 Peter 3, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment. But do not overlook this one fact, 
The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So if you're in here and you're a non-Christian, or if you're a Christian and you know a non-Christian, that hope does not go away until God calls us home. You have a hard-to-reach family member. You have a neighbor. You have a friend. God is displaying his kindness. Not in that he's slow to fulfill his promises, but not wanting anyone to perish. Whether you are a Christian or you're not a Christian, the conclusion is still the same. Come to me, all you who are weary, and I, Christ, will give you rest. And so the the act for the Christian is to go and, and, and repent and hide themselves in Jesus. And for the non-Christian, it's to know that they can, that there's a better way, that they don't have to stand on the final day on their own works, but they can stand and rest in Christ's work. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.